Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's a joy to return to the book of James. It's been a while, and I don't think it would be fair on you for me to just jump in at chapter 3, verse 17. That's where I ended off. I ended on verse 16, so my next sermon should be 17. Yet your um, bulletins indicate that I am preaching James 3, 13 to 18, and I am in a different way. Now, I normally preach week for week, word for word, and line upon line. Today is not that kind of sermon. Today I want to present to you wisdom in the book of James. So I'll end on verse 13 through to 17. We'll come back next week and just look at verse 17, and then the following week at verse 18. But the goal is to prepare our minds to understand what wisdom is. And to do that, I'm going to go outside of the book of James and link wisdom literature to the book of James and show how he's thinking about what he knows about wisdom. And that informs how James writes to these saints. Paul, in his book to the Ephesians, says, be careful then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. If I ask you right now to do a survey or a test and write a definition of wisdom, can you? Most of us would probably say, yeah, sure. Define what it means to be wise. And I guarantee you that most of you would say it is knowledge what? Applied. That is what my professor used to say, the street definition of wisdom. We are theologians, aren't we? We are. As you're sitting there, studying scripture, you are trying to understand what God has to say about what he says. That is what a theologian does. Now, that has been hijacked by the upper... Um, men with a lot of degrees, which is not me, um, and they call themselves theologians. Any saint who studies the word of God is aiming to understand God and therefore is a theologian. Read chapter 3, verse 13 with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? What an indicting statement. Who can you pick on to say that is a wise and understanding man or woman? Who's that person? He tells us who that person is, and we will look at that in a moment's time. When I began this book, and don't get a shock, four years ago, I wasn't all the time in James, so that's why it's taken so long. 
Um, but when I began this book, I said that right in the beginning, the, th the thematic peak of this book is verse 13 through to verse 18. I don't know if you remember that, but I do remember me telling you that, so I did say it. So it is the major peak of the themes in the book where all the themes coalesce, they come together because James now deals with wisdom, which he actually deal with, dealt with in, in chapter 1. He deals with works, which he dealt with in uh, chapter 2. He's going to deal with interpersonal struggles, communication, which he dealt with in chapter 3. And then he's going to deal with plans, which he will deal with in chapter 4. How do we deal with the future? How do we deal with making plans? What are our pursuits? And he links all of those things to one theme, which is what? Wisdom. So that is why wisdom is so important in the scope of this book. In fact, a lot of commentators will say to you that James is the New Testament, what? Wisdom literature or Proverbs of the New Testament. And there is truth to that. Yet, very few commentators demonstrate the link to wisdom literature or demonstrate the wisdom that James writes with. In this passage, verse 13 through to 18, James gives us two paths for wisdom, two paths of wisdom. You have demonic wisdom or demon-like wisdom, and you have divine wisdom. Wisdom that comes from above. That's the only two avenues of wisdom. So whenever you are not applying divine wisdom that comes from God, what are you doing? Applying demon-like wisdom. I don't know if you remember, but there is a theme that runs concurrent with wisdom. What is that? The major theme of this book. It is faith. Faith. Works, I said to you, is the major theme. Now, what is the explanation of that? Faith works through wise works of righteousness. You see why I need to do this review sermon. That is what I explained to you on day one and right through almost every five or ten sermons. That has been the theme. And it's been consistently the theme. The major theme of the book of James is faith works. How does faith work? Through wise acts of righteousness. See, concurrent in James' mind is faith and wisdom. If you have faith, what is he expecting? Wisdom to be demonstrated in righteousness. If you forget everything else, that is the major point of the sermon this morning. To demonstrate that James has not left the theme of faith nor of wisdom and nor of righteousness. All of those come together in this section. So since this is the first sermon back in James, I'm going to do a bit of a review, but it's not really a repeat of what I've done. I don't like to re-preach sermons. I seldomly do that. And I don't do, you may have noticed, I don't do um, New Year's resolution sermons. Now, if you were unwise enough <laughs> to make a New Year's resolution, I'll pray for your salvation. Um, people do that because they want a new start. We are to grow in our faith. 
right? Not have new starts every year. Why is it that you start in Genesis every year, but you don't finish in Revelation? Because the new starts that we intend don't always work out. Grow in your faith. Wisdom and faith. Wisdom has already been expressed in this book. So go back to James chapter 1 and we'll look at how James connects wisdom and faith. Just realized that I um, brought along my old notes, but that is okay. Um, I think I can remember my notes. James 1 verse 5, I believe it is. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. What is the context here? Sufferings, trials, and afflictions. So what is James saying? If you don't, if you're in the midst of trials or in the midst of affliction, what should you be asking for? The removal of the trial, right? Not at all. Ask for wisdom. Why? He doesn't explain what wisdom is because he presumes upon these Jewish audience, his Jewish audience, that they know exactly what wisdom is. Take note how he connects faith and wisdom. Verse uh, 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Take note how he links us to verse 5. If you lack, lacking in nothing. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Wisdom is connected to faith, especially in the afflictions that God brings about as he tests your faith. Yes, God tests your faith. He places us in trials. That is sometimes hard for saints to understand. See, God does not test you to see if you are a believer. He tests you to what? Demonstrate that you are a believer. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under a trial. Why is he blessed? Because he's saved. When a person does not endure, what does it say about them? They are probably not a believer. In fact, you know the the, um, parable about the soils, right? There's one soil that receives the seed, and then when affliction comes, what happens to him? He's out of there. This is not for me. I cannot handle the trials of life. That is not this man. The man who endures underneath the trial is the man who has stood the test and demonstrated that he has saving faith. Wisdom and faith are twins. The believer in the midst of his hardship needs to call upon God for wisdom. Now go back to Proverbs chapter 2. I know that some of you don't like me jumping from Verse to verse, chapter to chapter. I don't like to do it either, but for this sermon, you're going to have to bear with me. Remember what James says in 1 verse 5, let him call upon God. James 2, I'm sorry, Proverbs 2, listen to what Solomon says to his son. My son, 
If you hear my words, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. By the way, when I read in the Old Testament, take note of those two words, wisdom, understanding, or wisdom and insight. Yes, if you call out for what? Inside, which is a subcategory of wisdom, and raise your voice for understanding, which is akin to what he said in verse uh, 2. If you seek it like seek it like silver, my wife says I have a problem with S, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you and find the knowledge of God. Four, verse six. The Lord gives wisdom. Why does James say, ask wisdom of God? This is why. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of sinners. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path for. Here's why. Wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. James has this in mind. He's not quoting Proverbs 2, but the understanding of what wisdom is, is behind him saying, ask God for wisdom. Because if you ask God for wisdom, who will direct your path? It is God. That's the whole point. You don't know which way to go. Have you ever been in a trial? If you're a believer, you've been in a trial. And especially if you come to living hope. The Lord does some lovely things when you are faithfully growing in your walk with Him. Life, yes, is hard. And sometimes we don't know which way to go. So what does James say? When a hardship comes, look to God, ask Him. Because He's the one that provides the righteousness uh, that you need to walk before Him. Those who are dependent on God and His Word, turn to God for wisdom. Those who are not, lean upon their own understanding. God is the very source of wisdom, the provider of wisdom that directs the believer's insight, his decisions, their purity, and their pursuits. That's all in Proverbs chapter 2. James, in his book, is no different. And this is why believers must call upon God, because God alone is the one who's able to provide what you need with regards to wisdom. James echoes the understanding of what wisdom is and the necessity of wisdom for those who have faith. Not only should believers have wisdom in trials, but also as a principle of life. Wisdom and salvation are connected. Now, wisdom does not equal salvation. Go back to James. But it is definitely connected. Let me 
show you that in James chapter 1, verse 18. You may remember from three years ago, I pointed out that this is the theological heart of the book, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Pause there. God's sovereign freedom to cause life to come to people. That is what he's saying. By his own will, his sovereign free will, he brings life. He brought us forth. By the word of truth. That is how you came to saving faith. And that's why he pushes them back to the word in verse 22. Be doers of the word. You were saved by the word. Now live in accordance with the word. So verse 18 deals with salvation. God's sovereign free gift of salvation. By means of the word. That we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Yes, speaking about the Jews being the first fruits, meaning the, 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 those who first received salvation. That is what he's talking about. Not first fruits as Paul speaks about it, but here in a very Jewish um, a classical sense, he uses those who were first saved, that we should be the first to experience this salvation. Now look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what do you have in verse 18? Salvation. What do you have in verse 19? A demonstration of what? Wisdom. How do I know that? Because wisdom is keenly connected to how the tongue is used. How the temper is controlled. Read the book of Proverbs. In fact, Proverbs 10 verse 19 says this. In many words, transgression is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise or prudent. There's a contrast in the book of Proverbs. The wise are those who follow God. The wise are those who live righteously. The wise are those who are saved. The fool are those who are estranged from God, are those who are not saved, are those who do not follow God. And so when he says that he who restrains his lips is wise, he's speaking about those who have come to saving faith, not in the New Testament sense, but in the Old Testament sense. Those who have placed their hope in the promises of God. A believer who is saved must have wisdom. That's the expectation of the Old Testament. And James is no different in how he expects these saints to respond to trials and then also to people. Ecclesiastes, for instance, chapter 5, verse 1 to 2 says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart be quick to utter a word before God. You notice those three words that James mentions? Be, be quick to listen. Be slow with your mouth. 
He says, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let your words. How many relationships could have been saved if we applied that principle of wisdom? Let your words be few. The contrast here again is between a fool those who come to God with sacrifices but do not have a relationship with God. They don't know what they're doing, but they bring a sacrifice as if they do have a relationship with God. And those who draw near to God, who come to the house of God and do have a relationship with God, he says, don't just bring your sacrifice, but be careful how your lips are being used. It's interesting that that is exactly what James speaks about in the book of James. Faith that is saving faith is a working faith. It is a faith that manifests itself in the use of the tongue. Wisdom is seen in the employment of the tongue. James does not just expect that faith be alive and responding to the word of God, but that that faith would be evident in how the tongue is used. In fact, Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he has a religion that is a, a relationship with God, a demonstration of faith, and does not bridle his tongue, that person deceives his heart. And this person's religion is worthless. His acts of worship are worthless. Clearly, James sees a connection between faith and the use of the tongue. In chapter 2, James deals with the unwise acts um, uh, within a church context. Now, the church context is slightly different to what we think of because this is in a synagogue uh, setting. In fact, you will see that in verse um, 2. When, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your synagogue, in your translations, it is probably assembly, but that's the word synagogue, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay attention to the wise, uh, to the one who wears fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or come sit down at my feet. Take notice what he says. Have you not made judgment, that is, made distinction, among yourselves, and become judges with Evil thoughts. What is James dealing with here? He deals with the sin of discrimination, the ungodly, unwise acts of partiality within a church context. This is choosing one person over another and based on what you see on the outside. This is related to the outworking of one's faith. In fact, he does get to that later on but what james is dealing with here is this is unwise this is not how believers ought to demonstrate wisdom or faith in a church context in fact what he does is he puts the words harsh words on the mouth of the the, the saints in this church notice what he says to to them in verse um, three and you say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. That's, those are quotations. 
He puts the words on their lips. These are harsh words that he places on the lips of these saints. Why does he do that? Because James has something in mind with regards to harsh words. Listen to Proverbs 18.23. The poor use entreaties. They come and with pleas. But the rich answer harshly or literally roughly is the adjective. What does James do? He knows what the Old Testament says about those who speak harshly. And he puts those harsh words on the lips of these quote-unquote saints in this church. And he says, you speak unwisely to these poor saints. Right? Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Clearly, James has the poor and the harsh treatment of the poor in mind. Where does he get that from? Old Testament wisdom literature. But not only so, also from the law. In fact, God tells them not to be partial to either the rich or to the poor. Not to take bribes from either the rich or the poor because bribes can come from both people. And God says to them in Deuteronomy, don't do that. Make righteous judgments between the rich and the poor yet in this church in the context of judgment a court case before hearing the case they've already sided with the rich it's amazing to see how many times james actually overlaps with wisdom literature you may be wondering has the sermon started yet it hasn't in chapter 3 James returns to the tongue, which he actually started at the end of chapter 1. And it seems strange that he spends so much time on the tongue. Why does James give such a huge degree of attention to the tongue? In wisdom literature, the best display of wisdom is seen on the tongue of man. If you want to know a mar- if you want to mark a wise man, what do you look at? The use of his tongue. When James writes about the tongue, he's not ignoring wisdom literature. No, he writes consistently with what wisdom literature expects of wise people. And so the lack of wisdom seen on the tongue is demonstrated in how they bless God but curse God's people. Listen to what he says in chapter 3 verse 9. With it, this is our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. How wise is that? Not at all. In fact, he goes back to speak about how intelligent man is that you can tame every animal that exists. We have the capacity to do that and we we should. Instead of running away from snakes, you tame them. He's not even looking up. In wisdom literature, intelligence is also connected to wisdom. In fact, when God gives the men who build the the tabernacle and the musical instruments the skill to do those things, you know what the word is that is used of that skill? Wisdom. He provides them the wisdom, literally translated as skill, because that's the proper translation there. 
the skill to do the things that they are supposed to do. God provides that ability to be naturally wise. That is not wisdom um, in regards to honoring God or living for God. This is slightly different. This is skill, ability, understanding, intelligence. Man has that capacity naturally, but God gave them a superabundant ability to think more skillfully about things. They were engineers in the Old Testament. They were. David was an engineer. He built the first Gatling gun. You can go look it up. It shot arrows. What James is after is that you have the capacity and the ability, the intelligence to tame animals, but you cannot tame your tongue? Tell me, how wise is that? That is not wise at all. But what James ends on this section is tremendously crucial to understanding his connection to the tongue. He ends on this from verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? The answer is what? No. Can one source produce two things? The answer is no. Then he goes on. Can a tree, my brothers, bear olives and grape vine uh, produce figs? The, the, the question is, can it, being one thing, produce another thing at the same time? The answer is no. That's a natural impossibility. Neither can a salt pond bear or yield fresh water. Watch his point. If you look at the source, sorry, if you look at the outcome, you know the source. If you look at the, the results, you can know the source. What is the context here? The tongue. If you look at how the tongue is being used, what do you know about that person? What is in his or her heart? That's where I ended, and this is where my sermon starts. That's where we were in the book. James connects wisdom uh, with the saint, with, with trials, with salvation, and with um, wise acts quite frequently in this book. We just don't know how to look for it. Now in verse 13 through to 18, there are two kinds of wisdom that he highlights. Read with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? Here's the answer. By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness, uh, in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In stating this reality that there are two kinds of wisdom, James makes a distinction between those who live based on demonic wisdom and those who live on divine wisdom. Wisdom from below is unfruitful in its pursuit of righteousness. It cannot produce fruits of righteousness. It's unfruitful in that. 
but wisdom from above produces a fruitful harvest of righteous works. That is verse 17 and 18. This is the theme of the book of James. Saving works is seen in wise acts of righteousness. This is where faith and wisdom meet. Now, before I continue, let me pause and speak about what wisdom is. Let me answer that question. What is wisdom? Often it is said that wisdom is knowledge applied. And there is some truth to that. But if that is all that you know about wisdom, then you miss the substance of what wisdom actually is. It is not just knowledge applied. Wisdom includes knowledge and understanding of God's ways, God's works, and God's will. It's knowing what God wants and having a rightful response to Him first and foremost and then to life. Wisdom is possessing knowledge of God's will, God's expectations, God's commands, and having a fearful response to God. I should say a fearful response to God. And then obeying Him in response to His desire and will. Simply said, it is action that is consistent with who God is. Now, we come back here in a moment's time. Go to Job chapter 28. Job falls under the canopy of wisdom literature. Why Job? Job provides the foundational verse for the understanding of what the fear of the Lord is and how it relates to wisdom. I like Job in the sense that it is the first biblical written literature. So it's not the first in chronology. Genesis obviously happens before Job, but written It's the first book that was written. So it's the oldest account of what wisdom and the fear of the Lord is. So we should pay attention to that. Just like James is the first New Testament account of the life and the interaction of saints. So Job stands as the first book that relates to the fear of God and wisdom. Now look at verse 28. And he, this is God, said to man, Behold, the fear of Adonai, which is Lord, that is wisdom. I'm going to get back to this in a moment's time. But God tells man, I don't know when this took place, because if this is in the patriarchal period, then it would have have been personal revelation that God has given to them. And it, it probably is. He's speaking about how God communicated with man and reveals a truth about him. He says, the fear of God, the fear of Adonai, notice the the covenant name of God is not used. When Proverbs is written and every other, other literature that relates to the fear of God, the covenant name of God is used. But here, because the covenant name has not yet been revealed, he writes in terms of how he knows God. So the fear of Adonai, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is 
understanding. What are the two words that I said to you to remember when we think of wisdom? Understanding and, sorry, insight or knowledge. What does he mean? What is the fear of the Lord? Because he says that it begins with the fear of the Lord. Isn't that what Proverbs 1, I think it's verse 7, says that the fear, um, uh, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? So if that is the case then, what does it mean to fear Adonai? There are different views on this. Uh, generally within conservative evangelical circles, it means to have a reverential fear. And we kind of have that understanding, right? To, to be in awe of God. It can also mean to be submission, to be in submission to the will, to the word of God, that is the law. So was the law written by this time? No. So the latter one is obviously not an option. But does it just mean to have a reverential fear? I think it's more than that. In Exodus chapter 19 and 20, God comes down to the Mount of Sinai and God reveals who he is. And he says, actually go, go, go to Exodus. Let me, let me take some time. I've got time. Next week. Exodus chapter 20. Um, let's back up to 19. I'll, I'll skip 20. Let me just deal with 19. Exodus 19. Notice what God says in verse 9. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and that they may believe you Forever. Notice what he says down in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. And then God explains, Anybody who touches it will surely die. Verse 20. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the uh, to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses go down and warn the people lest they break through and Yahweh uh, uh, through to uh, to Yahweh to look and many of them perish and so they go down and he speaks to them look at verse 18 of chapter 20 now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were what? Afraid and trembled. You know that word tremble? Is the word for the fear of the Lord. The people were afraid and fearful. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, You, you speak to us and we will listen. What happened before this? When Moses spoke, they did not want to listen. So, so we will comply. So you speak to us and we will listen. Isn't that what God wanted? Lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. Don't be scared for God has come to test you 
Look at why he has come. That you may fear him. Our translation says it this way. That the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So don't be scared, but God has come to scare you. That word tremble, that word terrify, that word fear is what um, Job uses of the fear of Yahweh. What happened? They understood who God was as they saw who God was as he came down in thunder and lightning and great power demonstrating his majesty and his glory. They were crushed by the revelation of who God is. And based on that, they said, we will comply. We will obey. We will listen because now we know who God is. So, what does Job mean when, when he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? What does Proverbs mean when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It means that they come to understand all that God is based on what is revealed to them. And they have a bowing knee before him because of what they know about him. That is where knowledge and understanding comes in. So when, when it says... Um, Wisdom relates to knowledge and understanding. That knowledge and understanding relates to who God is. What is my definition of wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge and understanding of God's will, God's way, God's works, and then responding to God, first and foremost, before you respond to life. Does it make sense? So let me put it this way. As you grow in your understanding of who God is, how, what should you also grow in? Wisdom. Fear of Him. The problem is, we don't have a right fear of God. When we think of reverential fear, we're just thinking of being in awe of God. Let me say it this way. People can be in awe of what God has made, what God says, without having a fear of God. A lot of believers are in that camp, and that is what James is after. That you say you believe in God, but so do the demons. And they shudder. They are fearful of Him. What about you? Wisdom informs and affects the life as, they come to un- as believers come to understand who God is. Has God revealed Himself? Surely He does. Maybe, maybe not in an earth-shaking manner that he did in, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Maybe not that way but to us. But he did reveal himself in the pages of Scripture. So pay attention to that revelation. And as you grow in the knowledge and understanding of who he is, bow the knee even more so. That's the beginning of wisdom. If you know who he is, the more you would want to obey who he is. Uh, what he says. Wisdom presumes a relationship with God. Unbelievers have wisdom, and that is called natural wisdom. How does James dissect wisdom? There's only two parts. That's cool. Only two parts. Divine wisdom and demonic wisdom. Now let's go back to James. Having said all that, I have... Ten minutes to preach this sermon. Having laid the foundation of what wisdom is, notice what he says. 
Who is wise and understanding? So where does that come from? The understanding of the Old Testament that you, you know truth revealed about God and you have submitted yourself to that and therefore you live in a right relationship with Him first and then with other people. Look at what He says. By His good conduct, let Him show His works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is demonstrated in how one lives by his conduct. That is just general life. In how you conduct your, your day-to-day business, wisdom is seen in that reality. By his conduct, let him show his works in humility of wisdom. Not only is it seen in his uh, day-to-day living that it is his good conduct, but also in his works. That is being a doer of what God says in being submissive to the truth that God has revealed. And then in meekness or rather humility. Wisdom is not proud. Wisdom is seen in one's life. Wisdom wisdom is seen in one's obedience to the word that is in good works. And then wisdom is seen in one's humility. Boasting and self-exaltation is not part of biblical God-honoring wisdom. But boasting and self-exaltation is a toxic combination that will poison any relationship. If you've got a boastful boyfriend, is your relationship good? It can't be. If you've got a prideful husband, is your relationship good? It can't be. Because proud people do not know how to consider others. Proud people ruin relationships. So James asks, well, who's this guy that says he's wise and understanding? Who is this woman who says she's wise and understanding? Let me show you who they are. Their lives show it, their obedience to the word show it, and their humility shows it. Those people who have those things are wise and understanding. In verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, In your hearts, do not boast against the truth. I love how James words this. The command here is stop boasting against what is true. Let me put it this way. If you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, what are you boasting about? If this is who you are, stop it. Stop boasting because you've got nothing to boast about. All you have is arrogance and and, and self-exaltation. That is nothing to boast about. So don't boast and be a liar because the reality is opposite to what you are boasting about. What is bitter jealousy? The seat of harsh, bitter, selfish, self-centeredness is the heart. That's where it comes from. Bitter jealousy is reflective in how a person responds to people. So James goes from the use of the tongue to the response to 
people. This is a self-centered world, a self-pleasing world, a self-protecting world. Speaking about the person. Such a person is self-focused and such individuals, they just vomit out bitterness. They can't help themselves. They want recognition, and if they don't get it, you will know that they are not happy with you. They want the praise of men, and if they don't get it, they seek it. They crave for it. They will, they will passively um, manipulate you to say something good about them. Don't you think that that was a good sermon? If you have a pastor that says that, fire him. Wisdom is, illustri- is illustrative of the heart that is, uh, this wisdom is illustrative of the heart that is dominated by selfishness and, and jealousy. And then there's also selfish ambition. Still in verse 14. And selfish ambition in your hearts. What does that mean? Doing something for what you can get out of it. Serving people because they will mention your name. This is a neighbor to bitter jealousy. It seeks its own desire, its own benefit, its own good at any cost for itself. Again, expression of what the wisdom in the heart truly is. Verse 15, James says, this is not the wisdom from above that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. The the adjective here, demonic, it doesn't mean that the source is demons. He's actually using the the noun demon as an adjective, and he's saying that the the wisdom that you're displaying is demon-like or uh, demonical, demoniacal. Uh, I'm trying to make up an adjective here. Demoniacal. Let's use that word. He is, it's not actually that the source is a demon or demons. I mean, we, we're not charismatic. But that it's like the wisdom of a demon. So what he's doing is he's separating this natural wisdom, this wisdom from below, from God. From divine wisdom that comes from God. And say, it, it is alien to God. It is closer to what a demon demonstrates than what God gives. Say it this way knowledge and understanding that is void of humility, that is void at loving God's people, that is void of true obedience to God is demon like wisdom. Where you can grow in, in your theological knowledge and understanding, but if that does not translate to submission, bowing the knee before God and living in a relationship that demonstrates that you've been changed by God and loving God's people, then that knowledge and understanding means nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we as a training church who, who loves to invest theological uh, information into men and, and women, We have to be careful that we don't become popped up in our own understanding and knowledge and act like demons with one another. Wisdom that we naturally depend on does not come from God. It's not from above. Verse 16. 
I'm walking through this because I've preached it before. Where does jealousy and selfish ambition, uh, for where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there disorder and every vile practice exists. I move the verb to the end because that is proper. Disorder, confusion, and chaos marks the person who has earthly wisdom. That is wisdom from below. Now, that, does that mean that he's an unbeliever? Not necessarily, because there are believers that are chaotic, that are disorderly, and that follow their passions. And James is writing this to a community that have both believers and unbelievers in it, just like us today. And he says to them, and you'll see later on, he, he implores them to humble themselves before him, to bow the knee before the Lord. Wisdom from below is seen in a disorderly life, is seen in, in chaos, and is seen in the pursuit of that person's immoral passions. Relationships are ruined where false wisdom governs. Personal morality is compromised where false wisdom governs. Earthly wisdom naturally is destructive. It is not of the truth. It is not derived from God and therefore can be of no true value to God's people. And yet, the church runs on the fume of natural wisdom. Wisdom that is from this earth. How do I know that? Evaluate your decisions last year. How, if you measure yourself based on the wisdom that God requires, how does your wisdom measure up with regards to your time, with regards to your finances, with regards to your choice of job, with regards to your relationships? How do we measure up in making wise decisions, demonstrating that you understand what God requires and is willing to bow the knee before Him and saying, yes, Lord, I submit to your will, doing what you require. How many of us would say, definitely, I am the man who is wise and understanding. I cannot say that with 100% agreement of myself, and I guarantee you that you probably are in the same boat because we don't always make wise decisions. James has been leading his audience along to this very point, verse 17. There is wisdom that can guide us, that can help us, that can show us how to honor God and how to respect his people. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Pause there. You know what James does? He takes the the beauty of wisdom, and he summarizes it in a relational way. How can wisdom from above be demonstrated? Yes, how? It is pure. That's in contrast to what he just meant, uh, mentioned, the every vile practice. It is peaceable. That is in contrast to what he sp spoke about in chapter 3 relating to the tongue. It is gentle in saying that it is not harsh in how it treats with people. It is open to reason. It doesn't shut people down. It is full of mercy because it comes from a God who is merciful. It is full of good fruits because the two are connected. Impartial and sincere. All of those things relate to how we deal with people. I'm not going to preach that verse now. But next week, 
we will look at what it means. The antithesis to demon-like wisdom is divine wisdom, which fruit is seen in righteousness and peace. That is what wisdom is in the book of James. God desires us to live a certain way. And so he grants us the blessing of revealing his will to us in his word and says to us, submit. I've given you all that you need to live a life that honors me first and foremost. Now, do as I say. Let us not be like the people at the foot of the mount and say to Moses, don't God speak to us, you speak to us, and we will listen. Let it not be words because the very next chapter demonstrates that was mere a verbal expression of the devotion. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that many, oftentimes, we lean on our own understanding. We do not walk in wisdom. We do not have an understanding of who you are that causes us to bow our knee before you in humility and submission and say, Lord, you direct our path. We are proudful, boastful, arrogant people. Forgive us, Lord. And this is why our relationships are so difficult. Because we, we lean and depend on natural wisdom. Father, forgive us. We, we need your help. There are those who are not believers in our audience who have no relationship with you and who only live on natural wisdom. Lord, the only way that they can honor you is by becoming your child. And so we pray for them. Save them. they too may walk in a newness of life and in wisdom in a way that will honor you. For us who are your children, Lord, this is a dawn of a new year and we pray that we would not repeat the mistakes we've made last year. We pray that you would grant us the grace to be honest about the failures that we willfully committed. We are not ignorant of it. We are not passive in our choices. Help us to direct our thoughts to your word Submit our will to yours. Bow the stubbornness of our hearts, Lord, to your Lordship. That we, in this year, would honor you far more than we did last year. Awaken in us a desire that will glorify you in every step, in every word, and in every thought that we have. So we give thank thanks to you. For your glory's sake we pray. Amen.